0: We're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic
0: handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee.
1: Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything.
2: We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work.
0: I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the
3: way things have always been done. They want to change things
4: now. Hello, and welcome back to still watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with VF staff writer David Canfield. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for being here. There's uh, lots to talk about. We at the moment uh, are covering two different series, uh, Showtime Super Pumped, which looks at the rise and fall of Uber's Travis Kalanick, and Hulu's The Dropout, about Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes. Next week, we'll be bringing in a third series, Apple TV's We Crashed, about Adam Newman and the WeWork disaster. For now, though, we're talking about Super Pumped Episode 2, X to the X, and the dropout Episode 4, Old White Men. Later on in this episode, I'll have an interview with the showrunners of Super Pumped, Brian Koppelman, David Levine, and Beth Schachter. If you have any questions or comments as you listen along, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and in fact, we'll be sharing an email regarding last week's episode in a bit. But first, David, I want to ask you... If money was no object, would you invest in a startup? Um, no. <laughs> no.
2: I have seen a little bit of We Crashed, so I have some insight from all three of these shows, and
4: no, I would not. <laughs> it's It sounds
2: stressful, above all else, is the main reason why.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I ask that because I think that these two episodes uh, really... You know, have a sort of thematic. I mean, maybe the whole show, the shows do in general, but these episodes in particular, a thematic relationship in terms of like, why were people who weren't Elizabeth Holmes and weren't Travis Kalanick so taken by these people? Like, what what did they see that like? I'm we have the benefit of hindsight. Maybe in 2011, 2013, whatever, we would have been just as convinced of Theranos's brilliant breakthrough as these Walgreens guys are in this, (laughs) or at least one of them is. but it, it it yeah. But watching it now, it feels totally vexing. Um, though I guess with Super Pumped, I get it a little bit more because this show, which we'll talk about that episode first, um, it starts in the middle of things. Uber already exists when the show begins. Um, it jumps back and forth in time a little bit, um, but this episode finds the company uh, well up and running, um, and then doing some shady things uh, to I don't know ward off regulators. Do you know what yes. grayballing is, David? Um, I didn't before this episode. <laughs> <laughs> what is your I, un- what is your understanding of it that, now now that you've seen the episode?
2: My understanding of grayballing is essentially preventing people who are trying to stop you from stopping you, right? As far yeah. as you can.
4: <laughs> yeah, so they did use it against well, I think ostensibly my understanding is the technology was on the better side of things could be used to block people who would be harming uh, drivers or violating terms of service of the Uber, you know, user agreement. And basically they would, you would look at a screen and it would seem like there were, that you were on Uber, but you weren't going to get served any cars. But they also, as Mike Isaac's book details, now the show used it to kind of thwart regulators like the one uh, played by uh, Fred Armisen in this episode, he's a real guy named Eric England, who was the code reinforcement inspector for the city of Portland. So we find them up to some some bad things. Um, I- I'm curious as you see it. Um, you know, I'll have this conversation with the Super Pump showrunners later. But David, do you think that Super Pump is asking us? How much is it wanting us to cheer along? I guess with Travis and his cohort. I think that's sort of the the central
2: question of the show, right? Um and these these showrunners have uh um walked a tricky similar line with Billions their other show um in terms of presenting these characters who are who are pursuing something quite ruthlessly and brutally um and, and <laughs> knocking everyone in their path aside um or at least trying to. Uh, at this point in the show um it feels to me like they are very selectively, but also very tellingly, trying to present uh, situations where we are meant to see Travis quite clearly in the wrong um, and as overstepping or or losing a certain sense of humanity. Um, one of my favorite or at least um one of the scenes in this episode that interests me the most is when he um changes his hair (laughs) very subtly um but it, it has this odd resemblance to um elizabeth holmes's transformation with the black turtleneck at the end of episode three of the dropout where they these appearance changes signal a persona shift um and and with that i think comes a for the audience a new way of looking at them and um hopefully uh Identifying where they are making moral and otherwise mistakes. Moral.
4: Well, yeah, and it's interesting to think of someone like Kalanick, who is, you know, at least in this show's depiction, so cocksure, such a boaster. You know, he doesn't really seem to care what other people think of him, and yet he does need to, you know, keep Bill Gurley, the character played by Kyle Chandler. He needs to keep him. As a friendly ally investor, we see a little bit of that crumbling in this week's episode. Um yeah. but also throwing a huge party to keep his young, hungry employees not just hard working when they're back at you know, when they're not in Vegas throwing beer kegs out the window, but I think kind of loyal to him, which is where we see maybe some of this cult stuff emerging, both in this and the dropout. I'm not calling either of them a cult necessarily, but um, maybe you would. We work. We'll get to that next week. But, mm-hmm. um, but, but, look, you know, a look is is certainly a, p- a part of that. And, um, you yeah. know, I, I think a really interesting way we see that relationship between Travis and a particular employee this week. Carrie Bichet, uh plays Austin Geit, uh, who started Uber as an intern and later became a top, top executive. She's since left the company, but she was there, and I think she's still kind of a cheerleader for it, despite not working there anymore. What did you make of her whole arc on this show because or on this episode, rather, because there's something sweet about it, but there's also something a little vaguely sinister, in my opinion, anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a kind of she's a, she's a she's an enforcer in a very particular way in this show. And she's she's occupying a space that I think we're allowed to see her through these various characters perspectives. But in this episode, I think you get to see her really operate Um, in a particularly aggressive and um, kind of scary way (laughs) at times. Um, Yeah, it's interesting to see, just from my own perspective, um, a female character really emerge in this world, um, because these showrunners um, are really interested in an overwhelming sense of masculinity, I think, in terms of who runs the world and how that works, uh, and seeing her really operating on the ground – um in the way that she does i thought made for an interesting contrast and a point of a new point of focus for the show
4: yeah you have these two opposing scenes in a way where austin you know she's she's been sent to new york to sort of be the the front person the recon person for their planned takeover of the city um Mm -hmm. and and she's you know she seems to have had a good exchange with the driver who says i can now i've been saving a little money for my child's college fund thanks to your company and she's feeling good and then that's immediately interrupted by a taxi driver saying get out of my city and throwing something a yes. glass bottle at her and which i i i think if i were her i would be pretty shaken by that and be like why are the taxi people so angry is it because we're just you know these young disruptors or is there something more at work here um you know obviously the, they men- make mention in this episode of the taxi commission and medallions and all that stuff that was, you know, a corrupt industry unto itself, but it was the Mm -hmm. one that was there. But then she goes home to her hotel, and she sees that Travis has done a nice thing for her. He's a thoughtful thing. He's taken the minibar out of her room, she's in recovery, and she says thank you. And so she really does seem torn between, like, evidence on the outside world that nothing that this company is not viewed so favorably, but then she kind of returns to the fold of it um, in a way that, again, is sweet, but also, like, I don't know, do you think that... how, how much do you think Travis actually cares about Austin or really any of these people he that work for him?
2: Well, that also, to me, felt like an interesting contrast with um, Alice and how that relationship sort of disintegrates in this episode. Um, and he ends it quite coldly. And there's a bit of a fantasy sequence where he's describing to his mother um, the nice way that he <laughs> imagines ending it. It, it, wants to present ending it versus the way he did um, but I, I think that you do see a certain affection or reorientation toward the business and and perhaps some level of intimacy he's able to um allow in with people in that world versus those on the outside. Um it's really interesting you mentioned that cab moment too, because that's one that really stuck out to me and to your earlier question about, you know, who we're meant to root for. There were I, I thought there were some intriguingly murky messages about. Cabs in this episode. There's also a scene where um, one of uh, Travis's, you know, Uber friends in, in the room mentions the fact that he, as a person of color, has wasn't able to hail Cabs sometimes. And and there's this question of are we on the right side of history? And and the show, I'm always kind of grappling with the show how much we're in Travis's point of view uh, versus the shows, and that was one aspect of it where it, it felt a little unclear to me perhaps intentionally
4: yeah because i think as much as i my i and many others have criticisms of uber and companies like it there is you know the undeniable fact that it did correct some things certain people not being able to hail cabs um here in new york city uh which you know in, in the, con- the contemporary time of the show they're about to t- try to you know invade essentially um or they kind of already have i suppose um there were many, there are still, I mean, swaths of the city not serviced by the subway or yellow cabs. They invented a green cab thing, which was for auto boroughs only. Um, but, did, you know, it didn't really fill the void. And then here comes Uber to do that. And that's helpful. It does connect people who are sort of living or atomized in the city uh, get around. David, you're from Southern California. And from everything I've spoken to for people who live out there, like the L.A. area, uber and 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 companies like it rideshare apps have really revolutionized how people move around the city i mean i assume have you found that to be true yeah it's completely uh
2: revolutionized the way we live out here i mean for me especially with stuff like nightlife uh it completely changes the equation of uh how a night looks how much you can drink how much uh you know who you can go out with it's it's completely transformed the way we live so so for me um i don't even it's not one-to-one i think in a a kind of culture like you have out here um in terms of cabs because it just wasn't the same kind of availability the same kind of accessibility um or even the same kind of lifestyle
4: yeah i mean in the first episode of super pumped you know he's at they're at some party and he travis says Drink up, because DUIs are a thing of the past. Of course, they're not a thing of the past. There are still plenty of DUIs in LA and everywhere else. Um, Indeed, unfortunately, but but you know that is actually a utility of it. You can leave your car where you took it and just take a car home. And I, you know, when I go, have gone out to LA to see family or friends or for work, you know, a few years ago, the, the the refrain was, and it's so cheap. You know, you can just kind of use Uber to get around the city, uh, and I did that on a few trips and. And then, you know, the price kind of started to tick up while I thought about, well, if it's so cheap, how much are the drivers getting? Yeah. And how many, how many rides do they need to do in any given shift? Or, you know, they can, I guess, work all day if they want. Like, you start thinking about that gig economy thing and wondering if, as antiquated and corrupt as it was, if the taxi regulations did at least, I don't know... Help people on that front, you know they were getting more of a share because there were just fewer cars on the road i don 't know
5: yeah,
2: I mean, especially around uh, the pandemic too, as, at least here in l a the supply really just completely went into free fall, and the prices really skyrocketed, and there was an interesting period there of of people not you know struggling to adjust out of perhaps um, what they had gotten used to with uber and it being such a core part of the way they live. Um, And that just speaks to how Uber was able to so completely take over (laughs) and what that means when you get beyond that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Travis and his cohort, like do in this episode, make some effort to center the drivers in this, you know, it's better for them. And that's a lot of what Austin is doing is driver outreach, or at least what she was doing in that early phase of her post kind of internship employment Mm -hmm. at the company, um, and to that end, we'd, but I do think they kind of think about it like a video game or something, which we do sort of see simulated in this yes, episode. What, what did you think about that kind of strange Grand Theft Auto sequence?
0: I,
2: I, I didn't quite know what to make
4: of it. I mean, this is a show with a lot of style
2: and a lot of flash. And there is, uh, as I see it, a really um, obvious uh aim to depict this world and this this man's vision in in, in all of its excess uh and in all of its um recklessness at times and i think that when you get to a sequence like that which is sort of literizing the concept of this is a game uh and there's this really strong direct invocation of war at the end of the episode and you know using these terms that are maybe a little bit beyond how we would think of how a startup would operate, uh, that gets into this much more dramatic, uh, intense kind of back and forth. Um, so I, I did take it as a part of what the overall episode was doing and what the show was doing, but it did feel like taking it a, a step further, perhaps.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I think we could have maybe understood that these guys think of it as a video game without maybe literally seeing it <laughs> but <Exactly. laughs> um but it is instructive In you know coupled with the uh x to the x party which was this you know sort of bacchanal they held in las vegas following a previous party in miami where a lot of crazy stuff had happened uh and you see that this is a lot of rowdy young men hopped up on their own masters of the universe you know idea of themselves um with a few women like austin or um these characters we meet in this episode jill Hazelbacker and rachel whetstone uh who are basically public relations people yeah uh is still at uh uber she's the svp of marketing and public affairs uh, Rachel Whetstone, and she used to work for John McCain and other Republicans, and Whetstone mm-hmm. uh, was at Uber until 2017. She was at Google before Uber, and she's now at Facebook. So she's very well ensconced in that world. But here yeah. you have these women kind of rolling their eyes at the boys, and yet, and no fault of their own necessarily, but sort of letting the boys be boys. And you wonder, given what we've seen of this, how responsibly or ethically can these people really, these men living off of id really be toward the concerns of 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 drivers and certainly in the first episode in the first scene of the first episode we see them not terribly concerned about the safety of riders with this sort of fake safe you know safety charge or whatever yeah um yeah i mean did you have any anything stick out to you about the, the x by x uh, x to the x party uh in vegas
2: felt like not to compare uh, the the
4: project necessarily but it felt
2: very wolf of wall streety yeah, <laughs> to me. <laughs> um and, and again, you, you you do end up in that place of the show is clearly having a very good time in this environment. And I I, I enjoyed thinking about um the, the choppy waters of of navigating um a character like this and trying to bring you up close to where he is and where his mind is and and what kind of culture he fostered while also trying to you know pull back the curtain a little bit and, and ask questions of it and this is the party to me is a prime example of things getting so messy there and, and you have a concern the concerned face of kyle chandler <laughs> guiding yeah. you through it all um which always brings a smile to my face
4: <laughs> I, one thing that people will hear in my interview with the um super Pump showrunners uh later on is uh, best schachter um talked about kyle chandler and and the role of bill gurley and how there's an interesting juxtaposition, because you think of him as Coach Taylor, he's this warm Texan kind of presence, and and, and so you kind of, I at least, graft a little of that onto Bill Gurley. But he, you know, in, in real life is a is a shrewd investor and, and, and was fully along for this ride. You know, he wasn't there to be the father figure to these guys, he was there to make money off of them, which I think... Yeah. Really complicates that relationship, and I think that Gurley can wear. You know, apparently he does like to wear rock t-shirts, but you know, we see him (laughs) wearing a pixie shirt in this episode. Um, He can be sort of cool. You know, kind of like them or an older brother sort of figure. But I am curious to see where those the tensions between his style and Travis's uh, are going to go because I don't really know actually Gurley's particular arc um, in real life in the company.
2: Yeah, he starts out. Obviously, more non-interventionist, and and I don't know a ton about that story either. But of course, things will come to a head. The the show has pretty clearly set up um, brewing conflict between them. But yeah, he's it's just, there's a, not a haplessness to him. But uh, the scene with him and his wife, played by Jessica Hecht, where he's just sort of like, yeah, well, it was the party was Waco, and we'll see if it becomes Jonestown. And it's he's 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 so. um it feels like he's so at a distance right now, uh, that I find it really interesting whenever he, he does pop in to back Travis up, like in that moment, uh while they're playing Wii. <laughs> um because you know, the show is clearly planting these seeds very selectively.
4: Yeah, I, I it it's it's interesting to have um Bill Burley in this episode as a bit of a Cassandra figure where, you know, he's letting it happen, this rowdiness, whatever. Right but in private he's like i don't know it's kind of, you know he makes references to cult you know and yeah. and what he knows because he's a bit older he's he's you know had success in the past is this as a workplace is not sustainable and with the introduction of um gabby holsworth who is this violinist that travis meets who would later become uh a big uh you know i mean i don't want to say antagonist but she spoke out about the company a lot publicly Um, having spent time with travis in the sort of inner sanctum of things that that the bigger you get the more hegemonic you get the more the outside world is going to pay attention and stuff like we see in this episode like this is kind of the last days of rome i mean the the, i mean some version of rome is going to build and build and build but this hedonistic version of it i think bill Gurley sees like this cannot last if for optics alone
2: yeah exactly
4: well let's go now to my interview with super Pumped showrunners Brian Koppelman, David Levine, and Beth Schachter, who had a lot to say uh, about why they made this show, and I think to some extent how they think people should be interpreting it, at least thus far. Uh, Well, I'm so excited to be on the line now with uh, the three showrunners of Super Pumped, Brian Koppelman, David Levine, and Beth Schachter. Hi, all three of you.
3: Hello. Hi. Hey. Hi, Richard.
4: So uh, we're diving into episode two this week, but uh, before we get into all matters X to the X, um, I want to ask you, Brian. You know, well, I think, you know, all of you have billions experience, and, you know, our, this kind of world of money and industry has sort of been top of mind in previous work. So I'm curious, but Brian, I'll start with you. Like, what what drew you to Mike Isaac's book or the character or the real person of Travis Kalanick or Uber, the company, what was the interest in doing this series?
0: I'm so, first of all, it's so fun to talk to you um, and talk to Vanity Fair podcast. This is uh, great. Uh, I'd say a few things in, in answer to that. I'm so glad you started with Mike Isaac's book because that is the thing that drew us in. You know, Mike sent me, a manuscript of Super Pump, the book, and I immediately sent it to Dave. I guess I probably been reading it for two hours and sent it to David because it brought us inside a truly world-changing, not just technology and, and company, but uh, a world-changing idea. And and earlier, right before we started, you, you mentioned that this show is um, – is available now when there are other shows in the tech sphere and you said these tech con shows and then you said rightly uh, although this isn't exactly a con but i think that's really key no we're really compelled and curious about what happens in a successful one of these things you still pay it's very clear the price you pay when something's a con it's less clear maybe the price you pay when something isn't a con but still How the outsized ambitions of the founder or the company itself end up having all sorts of consequences on the real world. And maybe even more so when the thing is successful and achieves its aims than when it doesn't. And so that is presented so well in Mike's book. And that is one of the things that really drew us to this.
4: Yeah, I mentioned on our our podcast last week that I view... A show like Super Pumped, a bit like our, you know, this generation's, this era's kind of, there will be blood. It's about the kind of lurching yes. forward of, of American industry and the the sort of changing for good and worse, and and you know, bad, uh the the landscape of things. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you, Beth. Like, how did you approach when working on this show the sort of moral equivalent, uh, the moral balance of it? Like, like the the show is not expressly critical of Travis and Uber thus far anyway but it's not overly fawning either how, how can you talk a little bit about striking that balance
5: of course i mean it's a really interesting question um and is a really good next part of this process to talk a little bit about how we approach Travis himself and also the industry and disruptors um we wanted to interrogate and prosecute the idea of the cost of disruption along the way, obviously we were handed this incredible book filled with all these true incidents that when we looked at it and when we did our work as writers and the writer with our writing team in the writer's room and the three of us, we looked at it and we saw an accretive story, something that started to make sense to us about why and how someone like Travis could rise And change the world, and how that power could curdle in his hands. And for us, that was the more pressing question, which was how and why do these does this power start to curdle in the hands of disruptors? Uh, And uh,
0: that's a perfect answer. I would just say one thing on uh, uh, which is even just baked into your your question. I think. Makes me ask the question of how inoculated we are as a culture to look at the first 30 seconds of this show, where we very clearly and explicitly show you that Travis puts a dollar safe rides fee in an app, that that fee does not make anybody safe. In fact, all that fee does is make them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars when they claim it's going to make drivers and riders safer. This is the first 35 seconds of the show. Mm-hmm. We say it, we freeze frame, and your question is, uh, the show. The premise of your question is, the show isn't really critical of this guy. So I think that's more about our cultural desire, baked in cultural desire to lionize these people, as opposed to a kind of uh, just taking the text in and, and understanding what's going on
4: well i think the show is certainly critical of him you know uh and and the company from, from the get uh which you know because i think isaac's book is um i guess more maybe more what i meant was that it's a there's a nuance to the portrait you know it, it we see him with his family we understand that buried under all that braggadocio is a human being uh he might treat girlfriends yes. badly he might treat employees badly but do you think that I mean, what value do you place on getting to know the heart of the person in order, maybe to then? Well, that's perfectly more said, accurately man. Criticize? That is
0: yeah. no, that's perfectly said. And Beth, you talk about this all the time, and and Dave too. That yes, you have to understand that it's a human being, so that for sure, so that when the human being who you might like in a certain setting does these things, it's not just like we're condemning a person. Maybe what we're talking about is an incentive structure that can take a human in a certain situation with a certain set of skills and perhaps uh, lead that human being to ignore his better angels and to give in to something else. And I think that's really well observed that we're trying to show the 360-degree picture, but I think trying to show that is really different than than trying to say that this behavior is okay, if that makes sense. It's I, we're not trying to say he behaves in a way that no one else would. what we're trying to say, why does our culture seem to reward this behavior
3: but I think um Richard, the structure of your podcast is pretty interesting because oftentimes the the podcast will watch like most or all of the show or the season, and I guess you yours is going sort of as as it airs, so. Mm-hmm you're getting the experience where we see more of the charismatic sides of the character that show how he enlisted people in his vision. And we're not yet at the full consequences part of the, of the run of the show. And I think you'll have a very different opinion episodes down the line. So it's interesting to talk about it now, sort of like before the other shoes dropped.
4: Yeah. I mean, to get into something specific about episode two, you have this figure of Austin Gite played by the great Carrie Boucher, who you know she gets the 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 beer bottle whatever whatever it is thrown at her by the cab driver and so you're seeing some of those tensions and you're wondering like what how, what how is this worth it to her like what is her commitment to this and then you have the scene where she gets back to her hotel room and Travis has quite thoughtfully had the minibar taken out to honor her sobriety you know mention he you know i didn't know if you could make it to an aa meeting um so yeah, I guess as a, as a viewer of the show, episode to episode, I am at the moment seeing like, okay, I, I get this that yes, it's brash, but there is once you're in that family, I mean, it's likened to the mafia in this episode, it can feel righteous and kind of supportive and and all those things, even if it, if it turned out to be something uh, that wasn't those things.
3: Well, yeah, for sure. Because one of the things that we were thinking about a lot um. As we started to work on this, and all the way through, is that it's a story of revolutionaries unseating a corrupt establishment, being the the um, taxi and livery commissions that were sort of this landed structure that exploited drivers and people on the lower end and charged them exorbitant amounts for the right to drive cars and make a living. And so we have this this band of upstarts who are trying to change that, and so there is that, you know that that sort of like almost pirate ship like vibe in there as they go about trying to do better. But you know, as often is the case with people, um, when when you have higher goals at the beginning, realities and vagaries of business come into play and you end up somewhere very different than where you intended you know which is back to where the the landed part was in the first place and maybe even worse than them
0: and 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 also i think it's a great i love that you noticed that moment and it is i think it's a moment that you can unpeel in all sorts of different ways because on the one hand, it's definitely what you said. On the other hand, could it also be the way you're taking care of a valued employee and what you're showing that valued employee about who you are in the place that she works and why it's worth it? And and yeah, watching their relationship over the course of the series, and you've read the books and you know, is really um, one of the things is at certain times, you one might expect Travis to react a certain way and he might react in that way or in a different way and and we hope that you'll remember that moment and you'll wonder well has he changed uh, is this is this uh is there a coherence between that and and who travis is in episode three or episode four episode five in relation to austin
4: well and speaking of those evolving relationships um we also have the the situation between travis and travis and, and girly where you know in episode one they're uh, warily eyeing each other but then i mean for lack of a less artful term kind of fall into bed together and agree that you know w- with this very um i would think unique arrangement where there is no oversight i just get the money you can advise sure but yeah. like i'm not going to be told what to do and then we already see that kind of starting to crumble in episode two so how do you view Gurley as a character and, and his, his function in this story? What voice is he bringing to
5: it? Beth, you want to talk about it? Um, Sure. I was waiting for Levine because he usually has a good Gurley thing. <laughs> but I'll do it too. Um, You know, I part of this is that it's really easy with actual Bill Gurley and with Kyle Chandler, Coach Taylor, playing Bill Gurley to see this warm Texan and this paternal figure and think, well, this guy is just a cowboy. Who's going to be along for the ride. And does he know he's, you know, he's riding in a town to the worst town possible with this upstart Travis. One of the things I love about the way Kyle plays him. And it's just because Kyle is so brilliant is that there's genius in his eyes. And he sees a really big win and a really big disruption for the taxi and livery, uh, companies and a real a way to change the way people move through the world. And he is right. We know that because we're living in 2022. So we know that Uber changed the way the world worked. Gurley was correct to make this bet. And he's living with the cost of that bet, but he's also profiting from the cost of that bet. So we looked at it a little bit more like a brilliant businessman trying to figure out how to walk a very narrow path um, where his morality and his business acumen could, uh, he could hold both in his hands. And for us, I think that was a really fascinating and compelling story. Having spent a lot of time, obviously, with Billions and with this show, with these titans of industry, guys like Gurley um, are rare and worth diving into. Well,
4: he's such it's such rude casting in that way, like you said, <laughs> you know, because... We kind of expect one thing, but there's a lot more going on there. It's it's not Coach Taylor. Um, although he is in some ways, I suppose, still. Um,
5: I mean, I was with so, you and Julie on the Pixies t-shirt. I just want to be very clear that I was very much with both of you on the Pixies t-shirt moment. <laughs> oh,
4: <laughs> well, okay. The Pixies t-shirt's interesting. Is that him trying to, like as, as this party's about to happen, trying to seem more like hip? And it, it, what, what was the intention behind that
0: shirt? Bill Gurley is a huge rock and roll fan. And wears rock shirts all the time.
5: Okay, so it's an organic
0: thing. It wasn't him trying to. I I mean, I'm. I I, I mean, this. I will just say that in real life, Bill Gurley's a huge music, like just a gigantic music guy, and wears rock t-shirts a lot. Like a lot of our research, when we look at pictures of him, he's wearing rock shirts. And I, it's a great question, and we come at this from a place of curiosity mostly. Like, I love your question about why he's choosing to wear that shirt in that situation perfect that is a perfect question i don't think any of us want to answer it but it's a perfect (laughs) question right is he wearing that because he digs the pixies or is he wearing that because he digs the pixies and that's the way that he wants to separate himself from other vcs i it's a it's an awesome thing for the to tease out and for the show to grapple with
4: well, I, I'm I'm curious uh, about the show structure, um, in, in in you know in, in the way that information is being meted out. Characters are are revealing themselves bit by bit as we go. Uh, what was the decision making like to not you know do what some other things have done, or do the real origin story where mm-hmm. we see Zuckerberg at Harvard? In this show, we we begin a little bit in media's race, you know, um, yes. Uber yes. exists or Uber Cab exists. Um, d- David maybe, could you talk a little bit about about the decision making between uh, about how to structure the show
3: well i I think um our decision making can be understood a little bit by the way you asked the question. you know we do feel like we've seen that structure a lot where we get the origin story just like sort of delivered often in the beginning, and then you go from there and we were more interested in tracking the the main events of the story of the company itself. And and sometimes that entails going back and forth in time a little bit, but then just giving little windows into where Travis had been before and the major things that had shaped him. Um, you know, we knew we had seven episodes. We had a story that was chock full of events. It's not only about him. It's about a lot of other characters. So we couldn't get into, you know, when, when he broke his toy truck and when he was a kid and you know what that did to him and all those kind of things. We, we had to be pretty, uh, deliberate about what we were choosing and, and we just didn't want to do what was completely expected.
0: And and I, I, I think also all of that is exactly right and reflects all the conversations we had. And then there's one other conversation we had, which was if you watched Travis go through swoosh and go through the, next company. And if you watched him as a child, your identification with him would be so strong that if we're having, you know, this conversation now about whether we're rooting for this guy, you would only be rooting for him and would only think the other people were obstacles in his way were the monolith if you, if you saw that entire origin story up front. And we felt that wasn't really a fair thing to do dramatically or the right thing to do dramatically in this case. Um, As well as all the things Dave said,
4: Beth. How do you uh, do the calculation of when to dramatize and when to stick strictly to the facts? Um, I I guess I'm mostly curious for this episode's purposes about the X to the X party and is is what we see. I know some of that is from something that happened in Miami, like the keg out the window, but or am I wrong about the 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 facts there?
5: Well, we have this incredible book which has. Yeah, most of the information, but we also have Mike Isaac. So for some things, we stick entirely to the book as written. And for some things, we may compress a character, like combine two people together just for clarity of storytelling. Because if you had 35 people, as it often was, your brain couldn't keep track of them all. But then we also had Mike Isaac, who was in the writer's room with us uh, for the whole time. And so when we had questions like, hey, what happened at X to the X, he could go back out and resource things. So between all of those things, we are able to paint an accurate picture. Sometimes we're combining things, but they're always accurate. I'm certain that if you talk to, spoke to some people that worked at Uber and were at X to the X, they didn't see any of those things. And you talked to some of them, they saw all of them. But that was sort of how we approach the veracity of it it's when you have a book that's been thoroughly fact-checked you are on really solid ground um and so we use that
4: and it does seem like a lot of this stuff is kind of stranger than fiction you know it's like no that that really is what happened and so why would we embellish uh, it's it's true
5: and it just keeps getting truer like it you think that you are at some points in reading mike's book that you're reading a novel and he's trying to land the big end of the second act of the novel. But in fact, (laughs) this is just what happened. And we just had the honor of putting it on cards on a board and organizing it in a fashion to, you know, tell this one part of the story. But it was, it just keeps getting crazier.
4: Yeah, (laughs) I have the feeling it is going to get crazier. I know there's stuff that happens in Seoul and various other things. Um, Brian, you know, I'm curious do has anyone from uber or kalanick himself i mean i assume they're aware of this show but have they been in contact with you at all um during the process of developing and then you know writing
0: and shooting certainly people reached out and wanted to spin as you might imagine uh but we were not receptive in you know to that mike did so much research and Mike had such good sources that what we would sometimes do, because he was in the writer's room with us every day on Zoom. And so we would say to Mike sometimes, can you get more information on X, Y, or Z? Can you check back with that source? And occasionally he would bring a source to the room and we would confidentially have a conversation with that person. And so we did that kind of thing where where if we want a specific caller on a specific situation, we would ask Mike to gather it. And then sometimes we would interact directly with the source. That seemed like the best way to go about it for for us to to be able to tell the
3: story.
4: Uh, I'm going to ask a a sort of maybe trite question. And if it's too personal, no one has to answer it. But I certainly thus far with what I know about Uber from the show and other things, I question my usage of the app, to be honest. I'm wondering if that same sort of doubt has entered any of your minds about, uh, about using,
0: I use Lyft exclusively okay. now. I would use Uber if yep. I was in a jam, you know, I'm, uh, we're all imperfect. So, uh, I definitely for the utility of it would use Uber if I had to, but I use Lyft, I would say 98% of the time.
3: A couple of years back, I remember, um, when Uber had started using it a lot and then, Some of the younger people that were working on our other show started to say, you should use Lyft. They're the friendlier company. They're the better company. Uber, you know, Uber are the bad guys. So then I I started defaulting to Lyft. But the thing to remember now is like Uber is run by different people. There's a different regime in there. Um, You know, eventually when Travis's time there came to an end, they realized that they had to fix things and brought in very different leadership. So I think people can decide for themselves.
5: Yeah, our assumption is, as most of the audience has Uber in their pockets, and we want them to grapple with that question. What is the cost of this app in my pocket? We're not being prescriptive and saying delete Uber. We are, however, saying, now that you know, how do you feel about these things that quote-unquote changed the world? Or not even quote-unquote, that truly changed the world. He changed the world.
4: Yeah, I think that's something this episode shows so intriguingly. You know, they 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 mention the 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 taxi commissions, the, the the medallions, and 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 really the usury that was happening there. You have the ethical issues with drivers for for rideshare apps. You know, I was at LaGuardia the other day getting home, and I was I went to the yellow cab line, and it was so long. And with a kind of guilty swallow, I ordered uh. a Lyft, and it came so fast. And I was like, I'm so conflicted. I know Lyft is the better company, but I. I don't know. It, it It's such a complicated issue because these systems are so interconnected. Something can disrupt something, but it doesn't necessarily eradicate it instantly. They're, these things are still in conflict with one another.
0: Yes, that's true. Episode three, as people are looking to this weekend, episode three is a lo- largely about Uber versus Lyft. And maybe it'll give you some insight into that. It's also important to realize like, just how fucked up the taxi and limousine commissions were and just how restrictive and how bad it was for drivers and and how much a change needed to happen. And that's part of what I think is the sadness around this for all of us is a change did need to happen, but did the change need to lead to even worse circumstance for a lot of people as it made life easier and more convenient for the rest of us?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, in this episode, Travis uh, evokes, you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, who Amazon has helped lots of people's lives in terms of efficiency and cost in certain cases. Uh, the gig economy that sprung up around that is has been, you know, provided yes. work for people, certainly, but also there's the other side of it. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's important to have shows like this that, or, or books like Mike's that that interrogate that, and we get the juicy downfall of the king kind of thing, but so many other questions arise i'm curious for you um maybe david as you were making the show did anything new get provoked in your mind about this whole economy did you learn anything or
3: what new questions were posed for you are you are you talking specifically about what it was like for drivers
4: or just in general about like this whole economy silicon valley you know disruption um just any all the all, any of the many points that the show is touching on if if you went in with one view and, and maybe or feel differently about it now that you've been through the crucible of making the show.
3: No, you know, I, I feel like I knew the end result as a user, as Beth puts it, you know, that we have this thing in our pocket, but I feel like I was really lacking all the details. And I'm somebody who, who follows a decent amount of business stories, certainly through working on billions, but I was not completely aware of the details of this story and the way the raises happened and the way that the successful raises insulated the CEO and and, you know often insulates various CEOs to act with impunity and that can affect judgment. You know, I didn't know a lot of these beats and that's why it was so much fun to work on because you know, was learning the inside story of this thing that from a, from the outside you you thought you kind of knew about.
4: Well, before I let you go, I'll go and again, thank you so much for your time. Um I want to end with a question maybe for all three of you, but uh do you see an Uber happening again or has this wave of disruption that we saw the last 15 years kind of passed and things have consolidated again? It, what do you think the landscape is is still ripe for this kind of story?
3: I mean, I think that that would be, you know, uh it'd be pretty to think so, but no, this is going to happen again. It's already happened again. When you look at what the Zillow guys did when they started to try to, you know, it wasn't good enough to act as um, an online real estate broker for the masses. They had to get into a system where they were going to buy the houses and then that drove the prices up. I mean, this is going to happen over and over in different ways, It's my opinion. Well, the hope
4: then is that things like Super Pumped will make people consumers at least more yeah. vigilant about that kind of thing uh i would hope because i know that i you know when i first got uber i was like it's i it, i hit the thing and then the thing comes oh my god perfect you know and you don't really think about or at least i didn't about the processes behind that the people behind that so thank you all for giving voice to those people um i uh, i really appreciate your time uh and we can't wait to see more uh, you guys gave me some good teases for the upcoming episodes, that I'm looking forward Thank to Thank you so
0: much for watching so closely. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate the thoughtful look.
5: Well,
4: I think on that note, let's uh, go to a commercial break, and we will come back uh, we'll, to share a reader email about uh, Super Pumped, and then we'll go into the dropout. So stick around.
1: Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate minority leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? I, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the the hot new thing. And we do... The numbers.
1: So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive.
0: Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi, welcome back to Still Watching. Uh, I'm Richard Lawson here with David Canfield. Uh, so David... <laughs> still watching pod at gmail.com is where people can send questions comments concerns about anything we're talking about on this season or any other uh and we have an email um i don't have the person's name in front of me which i think is actually for the best because this (laughs) is not a fan of what me and our colleague julie miller talked about last week okay uh they write uh you claim you're withholding moral judgment but your disdain for capitalism is so obvious Kalanick might be a bad guy, but he changed a decades-old establishment industry. I'm sure you use Uber too. He deserves some credit for being a business pioneer and disruptor. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I I have opinions on it, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Like, do you think he deserves some credit for being a business pioneer and a disruptor? Well,
2: I think I think we talked a little a little bit about that. Um, just talking about this episode of Super Pumped. Um, sure. <laughs> I, I, I think that that's a fair – it's a, it's fair to give him some credit for what Uber became, but I think, first of all, we're talking about a show that is highly critical of him overall and is very aware of the missteps he's made and the um, morally questionable things that he did as Uber skyrocketed. Um and so there is just the fact of talking about that and talking about the show's depiction of that um and there's also the question of you know what it means for Uber to um have risen the way it did and and what the implications of that are, and that goes beyond even what the show explores, but like we were talking about with the cab industry or um anything else and its impact on drivers and employees uh so i I did listen to your conversation last week. I thought it was a good conversation. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think it was an unfair conversation towards Travis, um, but perhaps yeah. I, too, am biased as a fellow guest on Stillwatch. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing about it is that you can credit him with being a business innovator and a disruptor. I don't. You can give him that credit, but I don't know if he has to be positive credit, you know? Right. Um, I, I I obviously these are complicated issues that I just from watching a show or reading an article or two, I'm not fully going to understand the tensions between taxis and, and ride shares and the corruption in New York City, you know, the Taxi Commission, all that stuff. I, I you know, I can't weigh in on, on that. But I know that there are enough material complaints, not just about Kalinick's workplace behavior and that, that he both, you know, did himself, but also fostered and encouraged within people working for him. But also Uber as a whole, you know, there have been lots of uh, horror stories about, you know, the way that, that drivers have to really scramble to make any money. And uh, and it's a very volatile kind of gig economy job. And so, yes, I think we can both acknowledge, you and I, David, that yeah. Travis Kalanick did disrupt something. I think the question remains is whether that was a a good disruption. You know, I mean, that word inherently feels a bit violent but uh or not violent but you know it's it's a very active word disrupt and i've always aggressive maybe yeah it's an aggressive thank you it's an aggressive word and i've always you know winced a little bit when i hear people using it in such a positive way even though yes there's plenty in this world that uh systems that need um some sort of shake up um you know to, so to that end another disruptor elizabeth holmes um <laughs> We're looking at episode four of The Dropout, Old White Men, which uh, when we were uh, on commercial break, let's pretend we're at a talk show and, you know, you and I started talking as the camera cut away to the commercials. (laughs) Um, David, you mentioned that this is your favorite episode so far. Uh, Why is that?
2: I I thought it was a genius and really surprising move to immediately after you see uh, Elizabeth Holmes take that dark turn, literally and figuratively, at the end of episode three to take us out of her point of view and give us a completely new angle uh, that I think reflects Elizabeth Merriweather and her staff's comedy chops uh, that gives you, I think a new sort of angle on the broader world and time period that doesn't necessarily explain how Theranos got as far as it did and away with as much as it did, but allows you to imagine these other characters in her orbit, And where their heads are at um and it's it's enjoyable the casting of alan ruck as a connor roy-esque um buffoon for walgreens was pretty genius i thought and it, it also ends in a really smart way bringing it back to elizabeth um and setting up the back half of the season and really the downfall of theranos in a lot of ways
4: yeah, when I talked to Elizabeth uh, Meriwether last week, um, you know, she mentioned that things were going to start a bit lighter, and then really that comedy would start to shed, you know, as it goes. Because, and I think that this is such a crucial episode in that. I mean, we see that 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 arc happen within the episode, where you know, Jay Rosen, the character played by Alan Ruck, is he was a an executive at Walgreens in their health innovation department, a physician as well. Um, you know, you see him kind of bumbling. Um Josh Pace plays Wade uh Mikkelin, who was the CFO of Walgreens at the time. He actually is now the CEO of Joanne Fabrics. Which I don't know, <laughs> that's a lateral move maybe from <laughs> failed billion something so. company to 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 Joanne Fabrics. Um they're kind of bumbling and squabbling uh Rich Somers character Kevin Hunter, who's a lab consultant um hired by Walgreens to look into the you know viability of the Theranos technology. Um yeah, there's this kind of bickering road trip vibe to it. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, really poignantly offsetting that, is uh, Ian Gibbons, the character played by Stephen Fry, who's the chief chemist uh, for Theranos. He was brought in uh, by Channing Robertson, um, an old friend, uh, to, to into that job, and, and, and believes it, and believes in Elizabeth, and you see his faith uh, very swiftly crumbling, and it's really hurtful, But but I think shining through that is his warning that this is real people now like now yeah. you're talking about putting this stuff in actual stores across the country where people will go in thinking they're going to get fast accurate blood work done uh when the technology as we now know was nowhere near that if it could ever have been near that so i really like that that juxt- juxtaposition of tone uh, and and yeah that creepy elizabeth thing at the end where she you know they the, they're singing the song uh, which I don't think actually happened. I, I tried to find it.
2: <laughs> I was wondering but, about that. <laughs> yeah. I
4: don't think it did, but maybe, you know, and again, please email us if uh, if I'm wrong about that. But she, you know, she's, I don't know if, she, do you think she's enjoying any of this or do you think that she's so stressed out? Like, how strong do you think the courage of her convictions still are at this point in the show?
2: At this point, it feels like um, she's so masked in that protective. Um, make it till you make it. Uh, costume really that she. It's it's hard to believe that she's still with it. Deep down, it it really is. I mean, and I think the way Amanda Seyfried plays it, you you see someone who is just so desperately stressed and desperately just trying to keep it afloat. And and the, I think the other key element of the character is that she doesn't ever fully key into the stakes of what she's doing because there is this sort of delusional, um, ongoing belief that it'll work out eventually, and she just has to keep the house built uh, while it's getting filled in, even though it's not actually getting occupied by anything except for more uh, lies and um, false uh, motivations. So I don't think, (laughs) short answer to the question, I I don't think she's as in it as she was even an episode ago.
4: And yet she does seem sure of at least one thing which is that the more you pose as this dynamic young disruptor innovator the more certain people maybe those old white men of the title who are fearing their own obsolescence are scared that they're you know losing ground that they're out of touch will bend over backwards tie themselves into knots to believe her and trust that she will deliver them to into the future, you know. And you see that that great sort of funny, sort of pain scene where um, Jay gets out of the car and he he runs to Wade's uh, Wade's car, and he's like, "No, we we got to do it. We have to, you know, we have to make an investment. We're going to lose them to CVS, you know." We and he gives that kind of monologue about like, "This is the future. These kids are just uh, this town, the Silicon Valley. Yeah. This is this is where it's at." And you have to think, right, that, like, Elizabeth, in the way that she's, you know, the the costume, the voice, the big promises, she's aware at least that she has that power left, right?
2: Yeah, and the irony is that, in a sense, you really see her—she knows what she's doing in this episode. She knows how to manipulate. She's learned how to present herself and how to present her company, more importantly— in a way that can allow it to rise, even if there's really no foundation for it uh, that would merit that. So, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating.
4: It, it makes you think, I, I don't know if you've listened to, like, John Carreau's, uh podcast uh, about Holmes and his investigation into, into Theranos, but, you know, there are a lot of people that the, he talks to who are like, you know, she is really smart, and she, you know, she's an oddball, but she does have a certain gravitational pull to her. And you watch her maneuvering in this episode, as underhanded as it might have been to, like, kind of play Safeway and Walgreens against each other, and then this kind of CVS thing dangled in front of them, but I guess someone could, that is business, Uh, and she's really good at that, and you're like, if you had just, if she had just applied those skills to something maybe that was already vetted, already existed, and just needed that kind of Steve Jobsian, we can we-can-make-this-happen energy to it, maybe she wouldn't be a convicted felon now you know it feels like in this this is the episode where
2: the show really emphasizes no one should have gotten away with this no No. one should gotten walgreens as deep into this as they got but she did manage to do that and it's it's really fascinating to watch the show picked beat by beat the way she did that and the way through the uh, framing that we get these men uh, fell for it so um
4: endlessly, so repeatedly. And I'd have to imagine that this is a story that that, you know, iterates further out of Theranos, like throughout Silicon Valley, throughout startup culture, that like so many people are just like, Well, I missed, you know, I, I think there's a crucial scene. Um there's a scene, you know, early on where Channing Robertson says, Well, you know, actually I didn't invest in Yahoo and I kind of regret that, or I really regret that. Yeah. And so it's like, well, I'm not going to miss the next one, you know, and I, I just, I, I get that. That's such a human thing to, to, you know, it's FOMO in a way, you know, where, I mean, billions of dollars are at the stake instead of like, oh, I didn't go to that party, but, but it, it's coming from the same place of like, I just don't want to miss the thing that's passing right by me. And for Elizabeth to be an exploiter of that is harmful, but also... I don't I don't know. Is it horrible to say that, like, sometimes I think that these other people who so put strapped the blinders on willingly and just marched forward with her, like, kind of deserve it in a way?
2: I don't think it's horrible. You look at the names that would eventually join Theranos in prominent capacities like Kissinger or George Schultz, and there are these are people who are extremely powerful in this world. And who were swayed by someone who power was built on a complete illusion. So, yeah, there's a certain amount of scheidenfreude
4: there for sure (laughs) Uh, to start. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a little of the, like, I mean, this is maybe a leap, but, like, you know how, like, conspiracy theorists, QAnon people, they really are like, oh, I know a secret. I know something. I've I've <laughs> I've took the red pill. The veil has been lifted. I get it. You don't get it. And there's a smugness there, you know. Yeah. And I kind of see that a little bit with, you know, your Jay Rosen's and even in this episode, Channing Robertson, who sells out his old friend, essentially. Yes. I mean, it gets it ultimately gets him his job back, sort of. But like, uh, you know, it. Not really. th- th- <laughs> well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. He gets stuck at a desk to do no God knows what. Um. Yeah. I don't know if we really want to. I mean it's silly to sp- say spoiler when you're talking about real things but uh Ian Gibbons is going to have a very sad Correct. arc on this show let's just say that but um you know but they they do kind of think that like we're in the in group and and there's a pride there and a sort of haughty thing and I think that's what's so brilliantly illustrated at the very end of the episode when the ultimate perhaps ultimate old white man in the Theranos saga comes into the picture of the show who is you mentioned George Shult- Schultz played by yeah. Sam Waterston who, um, his story is going to be really interesting as the season goes on. You know, he was the uh, he was a major mover shaker in Washington. He was Reagan's Secretary of State, uh, and I think remained a stalwart Theranos board member until his death. Um, or, b- yeah. But his grandson Tyler would become um, a whistleblower. So, so yet again, when you know Elizabeth is uh, on the outs or feeling maybe insecure about the ground crumbling beneath her feet with, you know, lab consultants being like, okay, so what about the tech though? She can always go to some other guy who's wanting to, to catch a little of her glow, uh, and bring him to her side.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of what you're describing is something that is so basic in television and that shows like this can sometimes forget, which is just the power of rich, strong characterizations. Um, and I think the dropout does that extremely well in this episode illustrates that uh, from beginning to end. you know you have these characters coming in into the world that we hadn't met before um, and Stephen Fry is so great as Ian Gibbons, and it's such a heartfelt painful um, genuine performance that really resonates in this specific corner of a show that can feel satirical or really dryly witty or very um cutting and dark uh, it it ha- plays on all these different levels and it knows how to balance that. I mean, even having, you know, Richard played by William H. Macy in the way he's introduced in the first episode and the role he will play throughout the show. It's like, he can be ridiculously funny, but there's also a weird heart and desperation to that character that, um, is really well rendered.
4: Yeah. It's so, it's so good. And that scene between, uh, Elizabeth, um, and Ian, uh, where she's like, you're fired and yeah. he's, flabbergasted, um, is so well acted by both of them. You know, it's yep. Stephen Fry leaning into his British avuncular <laughs> gay charm, basically. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so he's playing a straight character in the show. But um, And Seyfried darkening herself, uh, in, in just in her eyes, but also letting Elizabeth be a little tearful because this, I don't know, does, does this feel to you like maybe one of the last moral fibers in her kind of snapping? When she, when she, because this is a guy that you know was there from the beginning, who she really seemed to have a, a strong relationship with, and now it's like she's just willing to throw it out to, to to maintain the lie.
2: Yeah, and it's such a tough scene to play in a lot of ways because you see she's too far gone, but maybe she's not quite too far gone yet. Um, but it it does have that sense of a turning point, uh, for her and just her, her ability to connect to people and really see people. Um, and and by by ability, I almost mean truly to proceed as she is proceeding she can't or she couldn't move forward because it gets too dark so she has to lose that um and and i think this is that moment where you really see her almost realize that in the moment
4: what do you make of that final look of hers in the episode um where she you know they're celebrating but she turns to um the the lab investigator or the lab consultant rather kevin hunter a real life person um and she sees him looking at the machine and then kind of getting frustrated that there's a, you know, confidential tape over it, so you can't actually use it. It's just there. It's just a glowing screen in a black box. Um, Do you think that's a look of desperation, of worry, or is there some... I mean, I don't know. I read some menace in there. I did too. I I think the show is careful not to um,
2: treat her as any sort of victim of circumstance, right? Right. Or, Or someone who doesn't have the ability to control her own fate and and i completely yeah, i read it completely the same way as you see somebody who is aware of what she's doing and is a way, and is increasingly aware of the kind the leaps of deceit that she has to make to keep the con running for lack of a better way of putting it and um that's a moment to me where you see the ceo this founder um understanding it's almost kind of coming to terms with their feelings about it and and understanding the sort of nastiness perhaps that there has that has
4: to figure into what she's doing yes and i think i fear we will see further nastiness um before we wrap up david um i have to ask you a really important maybe difficult to answer question do you think this is the most effective use of katy perry's firework to date to date
2: i do and i think that's all i can say because there is another show coming up that may very well <laughs> use the same song um so is this dis-
4: out, is this outdone rust and bone marion cotillard looking at a whale oh it- <laughs> oh god wow
2: you brought that right back with force um i i don't i don't i mean my love for marion and rust and bone I don't know if I can. It can talk. It's, that. It's However, it's apples and
4: oranges. Really,
2: <laughs> it's apples and oranges. And I think overall, and I'm, I'm. Yeah, I know you guys talked about the soundtrack, and we'll continue to talk about the show's uh, brilliant uh, capturing of a very specific point in time. Um, but it, it, it is a perfect use of firework, Let me put it that way.
4: Well, it's it's because it, in Rust and Bone, which if people don't know, it's a French film with Marion Cotillard. Um, that's worth seeking out. Um, Matthias Schoenaerts as well. Um, also worth seeking out. Always. Um, uh, you know, and it's a sentimental moment. Um, but here I, I think somehow the show, uh, director Michael Showalter, uh, Alan Ruck, it, it taps into that show. There's something desperate about that song, <laughs> like, yes, like, yeah. if it, 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 it's like William H Macy in Magnolia, listening to Dreams Can Come True, you know, in his car or whatever, and Absolutely. it's like that. That should be an upbeat song, but actually in this context, it's pathetic.
1: Hmm.
4: It's uh <laughs> Not that I'm gonna call Katy Perry pathetic, but it does feel
2: like with the with the lenses on toward that moment in time, uh the an appropriate uh tonal balance for the Katy Perry soundtrack because it's it's Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, imagine like psyching yourself up and like quoting um Katy Perry's firework in order to get your company to invest in Theranos. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just maybe that's just hindsight but oh tragic especially, especially because you really do have to psych yourself up
2: to keep, keep this going <laughs> well right yeah and, and like what better song to do that
4: and and like yeah yeah and and i don't know i feel i feel i do feel for for jay it weirdly uh as he's desperately quoting that song and i don't know it's uh anyway this episode has given us a lot to talk about and uh think about um so again please email us still watching pod at com. um next week uh we are going to be covering three shows so we have episode three of super pumped the dropout episode five and then the first three episodes of we crash so it's going to be a big episode we probably won't be able to get too into the weeds on everything but uh we will do our noble best um please follow us on twitter still watching i'm at rylaws david where can people find you uh david canfield 97 This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And as ever, happy investing.
0: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour.